Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Forever Dog Hey y'all, my name is Alex Berg and welcome to the LGBTQ Nation podcast. LGBTQ Nation is the world's leader in LGBTQ news and commentary. And every week we focus on major topics affecting the queer community and speak with the nation's brightest thinkers, journalists, activists, politicians, and more. On today's podcast, we're bringing Women's History Month to a close with some amazing LGBTQ women. It may be a new month, but in my book, women are always making history, no matter the time of the year. So today, we'll be talking about how women have shaped the political and cultural fabric of the past year with some very fierce LGBTQ women themselves. I'll be chatting with Sakia Dorsett, a filmmaker who won a GLAAD award for her documentary about the Stonewall Uprising, and Rachel Perone, a communications consultant focusing on reproductive, economic, and gender justice about what keeps us going and which LGBTQ women inspire us. But first, I'll be kicking off the show with a conversation with Jasmine Beach Ferreira, an out LGBTQ Democratic candidate who is challenging Republican Congressman Madison Cawthorn for his seat in the House of Representatives. To jog your memory, he's among the chorus of Republicans who, among other scandals, stoked the fires of the Capitol insurrection by rejecting the election results. In addition to running for national office, Jasmine is a Christian minister, a mom of three, serves on the Buncombe County Commission, and is the founder and executive director of the Campaign for Southern Equality. So we'll be talking about her campaign to represent North Carolina's 11th district. With that, welcome Jasmine Beach Ferreira. Hello. Hi, how are you? I'm doing well. I want to just kick things right off talking about your campaign. How is everything going? Are you hitting the streets or busy talking to potential constituents over Zoom these days? Well, thank you so much for having me on. Um, I announced my candidacy just about a month ago, and it's really been a tremendous few weeks. We're just so thrilled with the level of momentum um, that's grassroots energy in Western North Carolina of folks, you know, stopping me at the post office to talk about the race, um, signing up to volunteer, chipping in $5 contributions to help us fuel this. And we're also seeing pretty tremendous support from across the country. So, you know, what what this tells us uh, is a couple things. One is how ready people are for a politics that starts from a place of love and empathy and a sense of what's possible when we all come together. And then also how how fiercely ready people are for the 2022 midterm cycle and running campaigns that will win and and uh, defeat people like Madison Cawthorn, who is quite recklessly you know, representing Western North Carolina in Congress right now. Yeah, um, don't worry. We're going to uh, get to that part um, of this conversation in, in just a little bit. But first, this is not your first time running for office. Um, I mentioned earlier, you already serve as a county commissioner. Before that, you founded the Campaign for Southern Equality. Sometimes when I read a lot of national coverage of candidates in the South, it seems like there's a perception that assumes LGBTQ candidates have a harder time there and seems to forget that LGBTQ people exist everywhere and in the South as well. So has that been your experience at all? 
I'm so proud to be a, a queer person in the South and from the South. And, you know, uh, more than a third of all LGBTQ Americans live in the South and, and call this region home. So there is a lot of myth busting to do. You're exactly right. Uh, queer folks live literally in every town across Western North Carolina, across the whole South. And we also, you know, face some really specific challenges um, in running for office. And, and, you know, that's something that I encountered as a first time candidate in 2016. Uh, when I was told I wasn't going to win, I did win. I countered it again in 2020 when I was running against a really popular Republican when I was up for reelection. And, you know, folks just saying, well, you know, some, someone like you, quote unquote, isn't going to be able to win a race like this in a district like this. I think, queer, you know, as queer folks, we've heard messages like that in various ways our whole lives. And part of um, what I love about being an organizer and a minister and bringing that orientation into politics is that it's about people coming together around a shared sense of possibility. And when we hear someone say, there's no way to win there, what we say is, well, there is. It's just going to require a different approach, a different approach to organizing. And, you know, I've been able to do that in local elections. I've been able to be part of an incredible team the campaign for Southern equality that takes that approach to organizing across the South every day. And, and I'm excited to be now doing it as a congressional candidate as we launch a campaign that, that we believe will win. Yeah. I mean, I, I think unfortunately, one of the things that uh, we get used to is being very resilient as LGBTQ people. And yeah. a lot of times you get a lot of doors slammed in your face, but I think that that yeah. helps you build a, a thick skin in terms of dealing with these things. Well, yeah. You know, I mean, resilience, of course, is something to celebrate and it's something we all need deep reserves of, but The reality is resilience often comes because of things like pain and discrimination. Mm -hmm. That's certainly something that's front and center, I think, for LGBTQ folks in the South right now as we watch, you know, a wave of anti-trans bills sweeping Mm -hmm. the region and and stand alongside trans youth to to be resilient with them, but also know that, um, you know, kids shouldn't have to be resilient because they shouldn't be under attack by our government. And, And that's a part of what motivates me in terms of being involved in public leadership in office is is being one of many people helping to change a story so that Mm. um, we do see that LGBTQ folks can run in the South and be out and and be proud of who we are and run competitive races that win. I mean, it's interesting. uh, One of the things when I think about with North Carolina is the bathroom bills of a few years ago. And it seems like this issue has really morphed into the anti-trans legislation that you mentioned. Um, North Carolina recently introduced a bill to ban trans girls from playing girls sports. If elected, what would you do in Congress or or how would you use your platform to address this kind of anti-trans legislation? I would, of course, be proud to support the Equality Act. um, And there's much more to do beyond that. Uh, You know, that sort of would help our community achieve sort of the basic threshold of legal equality. But as you look at the federal government, whether it's um, making sure that there's uh, inclusion of LGBTQ folks in federal legislation, understanding of LGBTQ folks as a vulnerable population, when we think about things like public health issues, when we think about things like pandemic relief, or whether it's thinking about the ways that different federal agencies from the Department of Education to HUD to HHS can not just be including LGBTQ folks, not just including trans folks and youth, but proactively developing policies and programs that address the, you know, the specific needs of our community. And also being a voice, you know, I'd be a Southern out voice uh, representing our community in, in that space in D.C. And that would be such a tremendous honor. Yeah. One of the things that I was struck by is 
is the presence of your family, your your wife and your children uh, in your campaign video. And I think I was uh, especially struck by it because um, just thinking about your opponent off the top of my head, I can think of a, a few scandals that Representative Cawthorn has been embroiled in. Um, I'm sure our listeners have heard from rejecting the election results to social media posts about being excited to visit Hitler's vacation home. This is something that actually happened to um, more recent accusations of sexual assault. You know, seeing with you and your family, it really struck me that in so many ways you are the antithesis of his belief system. Well, our campaign is based on the core values that that my family and I hold and so many hold, which is about love and empathy and a strong sense of belief and faith in what's possible. And a big reason for why I'm running is because we're bringing such a stark contrast to, to Madison Cawthorn's style of politics and his style of leadership, which really have betrayed our district and frankly betrayed our country. And what we are doing is building out a campaign that is about hopefully summoning all of our better angels to work together to help our country move forward together and and also to serve the people of Western North Carolina. Our district has been hit very hard by the pandemic, very hard by the intersecting crises of the uh, opiate crisis and mental health crisis. There's a lot of critical work to do around racial and economic justice. You know, we need someone in D.C. who shows up every day to do that work. We don't have that in Madison Cawthorn, and, and that's you know a big part of why I'm running and what I will be honored to do if I'm elected to serve. Well, you mentioned um, what's happening in your district. One thing when I was doing some reading up um, before we got to chat today was that that I saw that your district was actually last held by a Democrat in 2013 um, and actually held by Democrats for a good deal of the 1930s to the 1990s. And so how do you plan on addressing voters who did back uh, a candidate like Cawthorn, who people already knew was far right even before some of these scandals? What are the kinds of conversations and questions you're having with the kind of constituents who backed him? Most of my conversations start with me listening and the kind of stories I'm hearing right now are people talking about the tremendous pressure that they are under because of a job loss, because of uh, an uncertain future, juggling, trying to help a kid do virtual school with trying to work somehow, Mm -hmm. having a sicker parent. You know, there's certainly hope on the horizon with increased access to vaccines, but it's a long road back to some kind of normal for us. I have found as an organizer, as a minister in my work in county commission, that when conversations begin by us actually listening to each other, we often find our way to areas of shared purpose and shared values. And, and that's the kind of politics that we're building out in this campaign. I've named a couple of the issues where we see really broad and diverse coalitions of folks coming together across party lines, across class lines, black, brown, and white folks. Um, some of those issues have to do, again, with the crisis of addiction and mental health issues and criminal justice issues and the nexus of, of policy issues around those expanding access to quality early childhood education, which is such a critical issue in the lives of working families and especially in the lives of moms, whether they're single moms or coupled. Um, So there are these issues that I find help us break through some of the scripts. And when we're in the scripts, we just, you know, it's very hard to connect with each other. But when we can have real interactions with community members and talk about what matters in their lives and what they need and what they dream about, we find conversation starting to open up. So that's the way we'll be campaigning and we'll be coupling that with a commitment to organizing all across the district. And obviously with the kind of robust muscular campaign that's required to compete um, against a candidate like Cawthorn. You mentioned uh, working parents and and the pandemic. And I feel like, you know, the pandemic has just been one more way uh, that has underscored um, the need for working parents and and working moms to get more support. So um, that just struck me. But you also mentioned um, your work as a minister. And 
Um, you know, earlier we were talking about the anti-trans legislation. You know, we've seen Christianity and religion um, weaponized to, to forward a lot of these culture wars. I want to talk a little bit about, you know, your own background as a, a person of faith. Have you always been a religious person? Um, is it frustrating as an LGBTQ person of faith to see religion used in these ways to justify discrimination? I grew up in a, a church that was a really formative part of my life. And then when I came out when I was 18, I, it was about another 10 years before I ended up going back to church and found my way um, eventually into a calling to ministry. So my journey has been sort of winding but it is really the a bedrock of my life and how I understand the world. I'm so honored to stand alongside clergy from across traditions and denominations in, in the South in this moment and make clear that there are many different religious perspectives and that the ways that Christianity in particular have been weaponized, you, you put that well, against LGBTQ folks and in this moment trans folks is just, it's abhorrent. And it's important to lift up voices of faith that are affirming people, that are letting youth know that they are beautiful and whole and that they're supported and will continue to be supported. And that's a big piece of what I understand my ministry and call to be, is to be one voice among many helping to spread a message uh, that's about love and about empathy and about always standing on the side of justice. And, and, and right now in the South, there's no shortage of issues, whether we're talking about the voting rights issues going on in Georgia the anti-trans legislation. Part of what's so compelling about Southern politics is that you always understand how much is at stake. And that's a lot of why I decided to run in this race, because there's so much at stake in the lives of folks in our district, but there's also so much at stake in our country right now. And I think the South is, is certainly one of the crucibles where we will see that play out most vividly. Now, um, I know we are winding down with you. Um, I, I am guessing you are extremely busy with uh, getting out there and campaigning. Um, but just quickly before you go, for Women's History Month, it is timely to talk to a woman who is challenging an opponent like yours. And given that you have been so resolute about being out and being who you are in your work, was there an LGBTQ woman who inspired you? Is there a woman in your life who helps keep you going? Two different answers. Uh, Pauli Murray is the first person I think of in response to your first question. She's a, mm -hmm. uh, a, a, an absolute hero of mine as a minister, as an activist, as a civil rights attorney, and someone obviously who spent so much time in North Carolina throughout her life. And then I, my, my wife, Megan, is my answer to your second question. I'm just very smitten with her. Uh, <laughs> and, um, you know, our relationship keeps me going every single day and I can't imagine life without it or without her. So that's my most honest answer to that second part of the question. Excellent. Well, uh, Jasmine, thank you so much for joining. Um, where can people find you? Yeah, we would love for folks to check us out at uh, jasmineforcongress.com. You can sign up to volunteer. You can chip in a few bucks if you've got it. And you can also just follow the story of this race. We would be honored to have your support. Thank you. <laughs> Here to continue our conversation to wrap up Women's History Month is Sakia Dorsett, a filmmaker and journalist, and Rachel Perone, a communications consultant. Welcome, you two. I'm happy to be here. Hey, Alex. How's it going? It's going very well because I'm just delighted to have a conversation with you both. And we're saying farewell to Women's History Month, but um, let's just be honest. It's always a good time to celebrate women's accomplishments and especially LGBTQ women because badass women like the two of you are out there getting shit done. So... Sakia, can you start us off? Can you tell us what you are up to and the kind of work that you do? I am a documentary filmmaker. I work to reflect the lives of LGBTQ individuals on screen um, in film. By day, I work as a director of video for a wellness brand. 
And I'm working on a short film right now about two lesbians falling in love um, in an Airbnb. Um, I am very intrigued about the lesbians falling in love in the Airbnb. Oh, it's going to be juicy. Okay. <laughs> I guess we're just, we're just going to have to wait until we get a teaser or something. Rachel, can you tell us a little bit about the kind of work that you do? I'm just scouring the internet for this documentary here is coming out about <laughs> lesbians and Airbnb. As you said, I'm a communications consultant and I work with a variety of uh, gender justice and repro orgs and have just been, you know, soup to nuts trying to navigate us through this pandemic and what it means for women and LGBTQ people. And, you know, as you talked earlier about the all of the attacks on trans kids across the country, just, you know, anything I can do to write and strategize and help us uh, get out of this mess. Yeah, we're definitely going to talk about some of these uh, anti-trans bills and especially how women have been used. Uh, you know, a lot of them have operated under the guise of protecting women. Um, but before we get there, I want to know how you both got into the kind of work you were doing. Sakia, did you always think that you wanted to make stories about LGBTQ women? Like, how did you decide that that this was what you really wanted to do with your filmmaking? Well, you know, before I even decided that I would focus my work on queer individuals, you know, I knew I wanted to tell stories. I had a eight millimeter camera growing up. I filmed my family all the time. I joined this uh, group called the Junior Achievement and filmed this commercial. And I was like, you know, I really enjoyed just putting these pieces together. And that's how I decided, you know what? I love storytelling. And so when I moved to New York and I was out, I looked around and, you know, there is not a lot of queer content for people of color. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I decided to focus my energies on and my attentions on. And, you know, I just finished up the uh, Stonewall, the revolution documentary for NBC News. And in that, I was able to really unearth the people of color that shaped uh, our history. And honestly, I also learned myself as I was, you know, researching that documentary. There's an incredible woman that, you know, so few people talk about, but, you know, thanks to um, Eric Marcus of Making Gay History, who we interviewed for the documentary, he found a woman called Ernestine Eckstein. It was the first time that I saw a modern Black woman in the Daughters of Belitis. Oh, wow. Which was a, I know, a profound um, organization at the time. She was actually vice president. Unfortunately, she left the Daughters of Belitis because she also struggled with what we still struggle with in the LGBTQ community today, which is this intersectionality of being of color and queer. But, you know, these are the people that we want to continue to unearth. And so I was happy to, to feature in the documentary. And I hope that I can infuse some fun as well into the work of, you know, showing queer people of color on screen. And so that's why I'm doing this next short film. That is so cool. I also just love hearing about like the unsung heroes or dare I say queeros or sheroes, whichever term (laughs) you prefer, Um, especially from these movements where like there's always, you know, a dominant narrative that is whitewashed or you know, very male centric. And it's just so cool. Like, I I love hearing about these people who are also icons that we should be celebrating and learning about. Rachel, I feel like you must get to work with a lot of people who are like making history in the present moment with the work that they're doing. Yeah, no, I'm really, really lucky to get get to do the kind of work that I do, both sort of personally and professionally. You know, asking earlier about like, how did we, how did we get into this? You know, Uh, you know, I sort of came up like, you know, professionally sort of came up doing nonprofits, um, advocacy work generally. And 
Now, what really solidified it for me is that I took a brief detour when my, my second child was born. I went into corporate consulting for a minute. You know what? Mama needed to get paid. I mean, we all do. Okay. I hear that. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I was like, it was very nice being the noble poor, but like I needed a paycheck. I needed a better, needed a better salary. And, you know, I was only in it for less than a year. And I realized that, you know, a lot of people, you know, you go to work, you do your job, you go home and that's fine. But, you know, my values and what mattered to me, what drives me, what I care about was so central to my work. Um, like I absolutely could not sacrifice time with my child to pitch, you know, Comcast's new Xfinity features. Like I just mm. did not care. So doing work that I really cared about and, you know, being helpful in one way or another, like I, I, I couldn't do without it. So yeah, I mean, I, I'm able to work with people who, as you say, like are absolutely making, making history. Then it's sort of next generation mm-hmm. of, you know, leaders, advocates, um, voices for for positive change. Yeah, I feel like what you both have said resonates so much with me as a journalist, just because I feel like so lucky to get to interview people who are doing really badass work and then also uh, get to cover events that I feel like are, you know, kind of that first draft. Oftentimes an imperfect first draft, but the first draft, um, you know, you're in real time um, covering different protests or campaign events and and stuff like that. And I also feel very driven, I think, by the same things that drive you both, which is just like amplifying more queer coverage and stories from, you know, within our own communities. So mm-hmm. I'm, I feel very on the same page with everything that has been said here. But recently I've been reflecting on how the pandemic has really illuminated how women are both dealing with a lot and also doing a lot of leading. Um, I feel like I've seen so many stories of women having to manage childcare and work from home. Women leaders just making great and sensible uh, decisions. Um, I was thinking about Jacinda Ardern in uh, New Zealand. She's someone who I, like, throughout this year have been reading up on all the things that she's doing. And also LGBTQ women who've been leading various social movements, like the racial justice movement of the past year, um, fighting against all of these anti-trans bills, too. So for you both, looking back on the past year, how do you think... um, um, women have shaped the the social and political fabric of this moment. I mean, I have to say I was, you know, I was a part of the trans march for liberation. And I think that was a moment where during the pandemic, when we had lost George Floyd and we were going through so much that I feel like trans women really rose up, really united us and shifted the conversation to be more inclusive. And I think a moment like that is where we really saw women leading. It was so important to make sure that we don't get left behind. Um, I think sometimes with, you know, looking at the violence of against men, women do get left behind, but we cannot forget mm-hmm. um, about Breonna Taylor. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we cannot forget about Sandra Bland. And mm-hmm. I think, you know, during that trans liberation march, we were able to see just how, um, I mean, I looked out from the Brooklyn Museum and there was a sea of people and I, my mind was blown. So, you know, again, just like the Marsha P. Johnsons of the world, just like the Sylvia Rivera's of the world, you know, trans women leading the forefront and making sure that everyone is included in the conversation. And I think that's something with our own work that we try and strive to, right? I mean, this world wants to erase queer people. They want to say that we don't exist. And so, you know, we have to show up, whether it is storytelling, 
whether it is fighting for our lives, we have to continue showing up and making sure that they do not forget that we are here and we deserve justice and we deserve to be fought for. So I think it was really great during the pandemic to see that. Yeah, you're just jogging my memory. I also went to that uh, march and I just remember being so... It was just this, I think this moment that will forever be in my mind of just this flood of people, everybody wore white, just streaming Mm -hmm. down uh, this one big avenue in Brooklyn um, and just really packing it in. And of course, that march was led by Black trans women and um, just such a a moment of of organizing and activism to behold. So yeah, you're you're really, you're just, you're taking me back to, to that moment from this past year. Rachel, how do you think women have shaped the social and political fabric of, of the moment that we're in? Two parts. You know, I think if there is, I've said many times before, if there is one positive that I hope comes out of all of this, she says, gesturing wildly, you know, I hope that all of these Zoom calls and all of this sort of, you know, normalizes our home lives in a way that they weren't before. Mm-hmm. You know, how many women do we know who have talked about having to hide the fact of their lives? hide their children, Mm -hmm. hide their lives, hide all of this going on behind them in order to to show up for work in a, you know, male-dominated sphere web. So I do hope, you know, the number of calls that I've been on in the last year where folks have said, like, oh, I'm so sorry for my children who are doing nothing in the background. Um, Guess what? They were always there. Mm -hmm. We didn't talk about it. We didn't think. You didn't know. But, um, you know, so I do hope that that one thing comes out of it. But, you know, you were saying earlier about... um, you know, who's left behind. I do think there has been more of a, more of an acknowledgement of the childcare and the unpaid caregiving that so many women have always done, but you know, who is being left behind, you know, the low wage workers, the folks who can't work from home, the one, you know, the childcare workers, you know, the low wage women in the grocery stores, you know, who aren't, who are still having to do all the things without, uh, you know, USA Today profile. Yeah, absolutely. Um, having to do all of the things and also uh, have put their had to put their health at risk this entire year mm-hmm. um, to make all of it happen. So yeah, I think that that is such such an important point. And I think that for me, when I when I think a lot about this and kind of to something we started to get at earlier, I feel like one huge issue that I've been thinking about this Women's History Month that has emerged is how cis women have been used kind of as a a prop or an excuse, or uh, I'm not even sure what the right word is, really in this like dishonest way to justify a lot of the anti-trans bills that we've seen. You know, it's specifically we've seen Republicans throw around these phrases and, and the religious right throw around the phrase like protect women. And it's like, I'm not asking for this. Uh, please don't use me as your um, reason to justify discrimination against other LGBTQ women. And I've just found it so, so frustrating. Um, and also these bills are just like straight up infuriating and horrible that there is this much discrimination against children, like against trans children. And I know that especially when I was a little girl, I sports were so important to me in terms of my self-esteem, in terms of helping me become more disciplined, just in terms of like having fun and making friends and having another activity. So I also find it really upsetting that young trans girls are being denied this kind of opportunity to grow and explore and have a good time and create relationships with each other. You know, what do you both think of this as kind of like the latest issue in the culture wars? And then also this idea that these bills are, you know, in the name of women, which this is not something that any of us are asking for. 
Yeah, we are definitely not, in quote, being protected. If Republicans wanted to protect women, they would protect our right to choose. If Republicans wanted to protect women, they would want to make sure that mothers that are of all different tiers can get affordable health care, that they can get affordable child care, that they can make sure that they have living wages. If Republicans wanted to protect women, they would make sure that they pass the $15 an hour minimum federal wage. You know, that's the way to protect women. What Republicans want to do is separate us from our queer family. They want to separate us from our transgender women. There is no separation. We are all women. Mm -hmm. So if you want to protect women, full stop, then you want to protect transgender women. And so I think that's a very Mm -hmm. important thing that we have to continue to push Republicans on. And I feel like we need more cisgender women to stand up when we hear that and say, no, you're not protecting me. You are just discriminating. I think it's disheartening that children are now being used as the latest Republican plot. You know, they tried so hard to make sure that they would just crush gays and lesbians. And we rose up. And so now they're going down the line, the LGBT, they're at the T now, and they're ready to crush (laughs) transgender individuals. And we cannot let them do it. Not now, not ever. Mm -hmm. I I felt that. (laughs) 99% of the people who are doing the the protect women nonsense we need to be protected from them. Uh, yeah. They're the ones who refuse, you know, underfunded women's sports. Like the, the stories we just saw about the NCAA, the women's, like the three dumbbells they got compared to the whole workout room. Like, you know, they're not showing. It, in what regard have these folks ever shown up for women's sports? Stop. I would stop. Just stop. No, it's, it's absolutely exasperating. And, you know, and, and I would say to like, every cis woman who is buying into this like you think you're not on the list like you Mm -hmm. think they won't eventually come for you too girl come on no it's it's absolutely it's absolutely it's absolutely the same sort of gender norms that we're trying to they are you know trying to impose on these trans girls sort of rigid harmful gender norms will come for you too a million percent and we know that any woman who is you know, the women who have been most harshly subject to gender policing, we know that this will impact the most marginalized women first. We know that any woman who doesn't fit um, a normative idea of femininity, like this is going to impact them. This will ultimately be worse for all women. So, I mean, absolutely, like you're so on it. I mean, this news cycle is so exasperating. (laughs) So um, I, I kind of want to get to some of the work that y'all are doing. Um, And Sakia, you directed a four-part documentary about Stonewall that we talked about a little bit. Just given that, like, talking about some of these stories just, like, makes me want to bang my head against a wall. It's so frustrating. Um, Are there any LGBTQ women from history who inspire you to to help you keep going through these times? You mentioned the individual that you've learned about um, by making your documentary. Is there anybody else that you learned about? I think as a filmmaker, I am looking at women that have produced work. And, you know, when I look at women like um, a Cheryl Dunye, who is the director of Watermelon Woman, queer, unapologetic, 
when I look at someone like, you know, Tina Mabry, when I look at someone like Dee Reese, uh, those are the modern women that are inspiring me to um, tell my story. Um, and I think that it's the boldness of being unapologetically lesbian and unapologetically queer that inspires me. Uh, you know, looking back in history, listen, it was hard for me to come out in, when was that? 2001. And we had mm -hmm. these women, these queer individuals coming out and living free <laughs> back in the day. I, that is an inspiration mm. that we have to remember um, that if they could have existed and they could have lived boldly, we should also be able to live boldly. Yeah, I feel like I came of age at a time when like people were really out on the internet. And I feel like in a way, um, like I, I'm so spoiled because people were so, there were so many people who were talking about being out and I, I never want to lose sight of of those folks who were out and, as you said, radical, mm -hmm. like back at a time when it was, you know, as hard as it is today, so much harder. And, and, you know, don't have, even though now it feels like we have a slither of legal protections and such, like they didn't have any of that back then. So I, yeah, I think that that is just such a good point and same thinking about those people. Rachel, for you, are there any women in the reproductive justice movement that inspire you to keep going or in any of the work that you're doing? Um, I was tipped off that I should ask you about oh, God. Tiny Nana. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> That's my mother. Oh. Um, you know, I have been getting so much inspiration lately. I mean, both from yeah, young people I know very well, some of whom are just in the next room right now minding my cat. And, you know, some of the young people that I work with, that I get to work with, like through the, through the organizations I do, like she's done a couple interviews for us, for us already. There's a young woman in Minnesota named Grace, who is just turned 18. She was like the captain of her cheerleading team and her tennis team and is trans and has just been like living so, I don't know how I, even how to say it. Like she is both the most regular, typical teenager and is also so extraordinary. You know, just her ability to go out there and just be like, this is who I am and I'm fine and it's great. And the challenges that she's, that are coming to her just for being who she is mm -hmm. and her sort of, I don't know what to tell you, this is who I am and I'm not stopping has been just blown me out of the water. So just getting to like, you know, work with this girl and tell her story has been, has blown me away. Yeah. I, I love seeing young people get so activated and engaged over the past year. I just want to throw in a few names myself. I mean, I feel like learning LGBTQ history as an adult just really opened my eyes so much. And there are a few women, I mean, definitely like Marsha P. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera, of course. But also, I feel like I want to shout out Brenda Howard for some of our listeners. Um, she was a really badass bisexual activist who just did a ton of organizing in the 80s, was also, you know, responsible for helping organize uh, the March on Christopher Street. And I, I sometimes just wish that she got more, like, 
presence in the conversation um, in the LGBTQ rights movement because she did such important stuff for bisexual people. And then someone else I want to shout out is um, Stormy DeLavier, who I wonder, Sikia, if you covered her stuff at all just in your work as well. Um, she was a really badass black butch lesbian guardian of Greenwich Village. There are stories about her like basically looking out for the girls, like the young lesbians and queer women um, in the village. And I would just encourage our listeners, like Google Stormy and the photos alone are so amazing of just this badass woman who was like, not going to let anybody bother the like young LGBTQ women. Um, she was a bouncer um, for a lesbian bar, Henrietta Hudson. I think she was also the bouncer for the cubbyhole for a long time. Um, and so for me, I feel like when I think of someone who is just like standing in their own power and truth and like unafraid, she's someone who I think of. And also from our conversation, just talking about unsung people, like the people who we're still uncovering and who we're still like documenting their stories. She's someone who I also really think of. And it just brings me so much joy to get to talk to her and or talk talk about her rather and look up her work and learn about more of these people whose names we should all know and who I hope one day the this next generation of young people that we're talking about that like they'll just get to learn about these people in school. You know, they won't have to like re-educate themselves as adults. So Fast forward, we're having this conversation next year. What achievements, what what big things do you hope LGBTQ women will have done by then and, and what we'll be celebrating by then? I hope that we will be celebrating, you know, we see the conservatives really moving forward with some big legislation, signing really hurtful things into law. And I hope that we next year you know, the Biden administration would get their feet wet. I mean, listen, they're dealing with a pandemic. So all of these bills are being signed from Arkansas to Tennessee. You know, I'm sure they are also kind of enraged. Like here we are dealing with the pandemic and immigration and all of this stuff is happening. So I hope by then they would have some sort of handle on the rest of the country and we would have some legislation of our own that we could be celebrating, um, especially around transgender rights, especially around just as simple, I mean, something for everybody, which is federal minimum wage, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, federal minimum wage. And once we make sure that um, our queer brothers and sisters cannot 100% get fired in every single state, now we're dealing with good stuff. Now we're taking the first step forward because of course, with economic stability, then now we start moving forward. So I really, really hope that that's something that we could be celebrating next year. Absolutely. Rachel, how about you? What conversation do you hope? Fast forward next year, we're all back here having this chat. What do you hope we're talking about? I am trying to come up with a positive spin and not be like, we will not have lost. We will not have lost XYZ. <laughs> you know, but remembering too, that like DOMA was the law of the land just a few years before mm-hmm. Supreme Court brought us marriage equality. You know, I remember when, you know, some of the organizations were really taking it, taking it to the Supreme Court, you know, and not taking it slow, not taking an incrementalist approach. There was a big conversation in the movement, like, I don't know, you guys, like, if, if we, they strike this down, like, we're, we're really sunk for a while. But when for we won? You know, so part of me thinks that, you know, what the right is doing by going after the most marginalized, you know, the kids, um, you know, the trans kids in this way, 
is a sign they've lost so many other battles. They're going mm-hmm. after the more and more marginalized. And it's up to us to make sure that they don't, that they don't win. But it did not take us, look how quickly sort of the legal, the court battles around marriage equality, once it happened, it happened very fast. I'm feeling very sad and angry and, you know, irritated about, I'm just heartbroken about all the shit that's moving through the states. But we can do this. How can we protect trans kids is really going to be the next. Mm -hmm. You know what I think it is? They are seeing kids as what they're probably seeing as like, oh, well, if we have kids finally living their truth, then if we stop them now, then we're going to stop the adults. Mm -hmm. You know, Mm -hmm. so they're Mm -hmm. like, let's target the kids. No, you won't Mm -hmm. stop them. They are living their truth. Okay. Mm -hmm. So the only thing you're going to do is get those trans kids fired right up. And so they're going to vote your little behinds right out. (laughs) So you actually may be biting yourself. You are galvanizing a whole generation of kids that are queer, that are on the spectrum and that love their trans brothers and sisters. And so Republicans, you're doing the complete opposite of what you Mm -hmm. think is going to happen. You're galvanizing us. And there's nothing like, you can't just peck one of us off the, you just like, okay, now you're gone. (laughs) No, no, no. We're going to come to that defense. We're going to come to that defense. And that's what you saw with the um, Black Lives Matter movement, right? You tried to peck off the black people? No, our allies came. You're going to try to figure out the... Nope, 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 nope. We got the Asians back too. You're coming for the Native Americans? No, no, we got the Native Americans. Coming for the... Nope, we got them too. So... Oh, exactly. Yes. Rachel's giving a big hug. <laughs> a big yes. <laughs> you, you, come, 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 come. Yes, exactly. <laughs> We're going to galvanize and that's going to be the end of the Republican Party. So I hope that when we're here next time, we see some changes. I mean, I'm feeling those same emotions and I feel like a resolute we can do this is the right note to end this conversation on. Um, I can't thank you both enough for having this conversation. It was delightful to talk to you two. It was also super informative. And I hope that we get to talk soon again. Before you go, where can our listeners find you, Sakia? I am on Instagram at Sakia underscore Dorset, S-E-K-I-Y-A underscore D-O-R-S-E-T-T on Instagram. Rachel, where can folks find you? On Twitter at Rachel Perone and uh, also on Substack where I have a little roundup newsletter because this is a law these days. We all have blogs and we all have Substacks uh, where I do a daily roundup of um, headlines on gender and reprojustice issues. Excellent. Well, thank you both so much. Hopefully we'll get to talk again sometime soon. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Alex. Each week after we talk about the news, I like to leave you with a story that's bringing me joy. And this one is so good. I'm here for Lil Nas X telling off the haters. Last week, he released the video for Montero, Call Me By Your Name. If you somehow haven't watched yet, it has amazing visuals, including a dance with Satan and a very open embrace of his sexuality. When the video came out, Lil Nas X tweeted a letter to his younger self saying that, quote, this will open doors for many other queer people to simply exist. And LGBTQ fans are praising him for being open in a way that we don't normally get to see gay male artists express themselves in the mainstream. Well, of course, cue the trolls. 
In response, various figures on the right, from Candace Owens to South Dakota Governor Kristi Noem, accused Lil Nas X of corrupting the youth and destroying religion. But you do not want to come for Lil Nas X. He hit back at the criticism with some hilarious and on-point tweets, pointing out that Governor Noem, an actual elected official and one who supports anti-trans legislation, by the way, was tweeting at him instead of working. And he posted this very astute tweet, which is my fave. He said, y'all love saying we going to hell, but get upset when I actually go there. This is so true. The religious right tells queer people all the time that we're going to hell. Then when we finally do allow this music video and have a casual dance with Satan, they're still mad. So I say stay mad and we'll stay rooting for Lil Nas X. Please make sure to support the LGBTQ Nation podcast. Subscribe, rate, and review our show right now on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Five stars, please. And check out LGBTQ Nation every day at www.lgbtqnation.com. LGBTQ Nation has been a joint production between Forever Dog and Q Digital. LGBTQ Nation is hosted by Alex Berg, produced by Andrew McGuire, engineered by Katrina Henning, Music by Gabe Lopez, executive produced by Joe Cilio, Scott Katz, John Halbach, Bill Browning, and Melissa D. Monts. Forever. Forever.